Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to In My Non-Expert Opinion. It's your host, Chelsea Rife, and today I want to kick off the episode talking a little bit about universal synchronicities. So you know when you're thinking about a number or an angel number and then you just walk along the street and you can't help but see it six times and you're like, hmm, that's a nice wink from the universe. Or you're thinking about a song and it's an old song and you're like, I don't even really remember the name of it. And then it comes on in a Pilates class. That just happened to me this morning. Or you stalk an Instagram account and you're obsessed with it and even make it your phone wallpaper background. You take images from it to create almost a vision board. And all of a sudden, the person that runs that Instagram account reaches out to you to come on your podcast and share their new book. Well, that just happened to me too. So today I have the honor of talking to Liz Tran. She's the founder of Reset NYC, which is the account I'm talking about on Instagram. And she just wrote the incredible book, The Karma of Success. Liz is an executive coach to CEOs and founders of fast-growing companies and spent a decade in venture capital and tech. She's also a meditation teacher, a Reiki master, and she hosts the podcast Reset with Liz Tran, which you need to go listen to and binge. Her book comes out this week, so run, don't walk, and add it to your cart. And Liz's mission through writing, coaching, and podcasting is to help others reach their greatest potential. Liz and I really clicked and we actually ended up talking for almost two full hours. So this is going to be a two-parter and I'm really excited because she is very transparent like me. And to be honest, guys, sometimes I'm a nosy little biatch and I just ask questions and I'm like, wait, 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 hold on. Pause right there. Let's double click on that. And Liz was willing to go there with me and really open up about some things that she hasn't talked about before. And I think you'll really appreciate her story. In this first part, we discuss her journey from poverty to making six figures and traveling the world. She shares her experience of managing money and working at the venture capital firm as the only female executive. We talk about rewiring her mindset and the ups and downs of starting her own business, Reset, and what happens when you start a physical company and then something like COVID-19 completely wipes it out. Yeah. Did that happen to anyone else? Because Liz faced that head on and through perseverance and a focus on personal growth, she rebuilt her coaching practice and landed a book deal, which we also talk about. And really the overall message here is the importance of resilience and self-belief in achieving success. A lot of times success is marketed to us as numbers and status and title, but what would it mean if you start looking at your success a little differently? and a little more spiritually and a little more focus on your inner world. That's something that Liz and I really get into today. So buckle up. That's just part one. Part two, I pretty much grill her on what it's like to write a book. So what's the process? How long does it take? What can we expect if we're new writers? So if you're writing a book or you're thinking about it, then you'll definitely want to tune into part two next week where we get into all the nitty gritty details of writing a book. What I found fascinating is she said a lot of writers that get book deals don't necessarily have the biggest platforms, and obviously it does help to have one. And she mentioned her podcast, Reset, was a big factor in her securing her book deal. So if you're like, okay, wait a second, I do see how podcasting can be an extension of my business or help me build a platform for a future book I want to write, then I encourage you to go check out Mic Drop. You can find the link in the show notes. It's the ultimate podcast launch course. So it takes you through everything from ideation to publishing, how to find a name, how to create cover art, editing, recording, marketing. It's all in there and it's very specific and to the point. So if you follow the checklist inside Mic Drop, you can launch your podcast in as little as four weeks and finally share the stories that I'm sure are buried inside of you waiting to come out. 
So if you're like, yup, it's time for me to launch a podcast, then head to the link in my show notes. You can learn all about Mic Drop. And I hope to hear you on the airwaves soon. We are dying to hear those stories that I know are waiting to come out of you. All right, without further ado, let's get into this week's episode, part one with Liz Tran. Liz Tran, founder of Reset NYC, executive coach to CEOs and founders of the fastest growing companies, and the recent author of The Karma of Success, Spiritual Strategies to Free Your Inner Genius. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Chelsea. I am really excited to just get into it with you and have a good combo. So thanks for having me. I'm so, so excited. I've heard you on other podcasts. I've skimmed the book and I know that you have so much to say about the book and your past. And I think what's fascinating to me is just your journey into how you even got into book publishing from venture capital. So in my mind, someone that ends up in a venture capital firm or any type of tech startup has a really strong tech background, software engineering, has connections, went to Harvard. From what I know about you, that's not the case. Can you tell us how someone just ends up in the world of venture capitalism and tech? Yes, definitely. I will try to keep this brief, but it is a little bit of like a winding road where it wasn't so straightforward. But, you know, actually something that I'm really proud of. I always wanted to write a book. So I studied history and English when I was in college. And when I graduated in 2007, I thought, okay, what can I do to make some money? I grew up very poor in Section 8 housing and, you know, we were on food stamps and, and it had always been like a goal to find some sort of like st- financial stability for myself. So I thought, okay, I'm going to become a lawyer. So I moved to Los Angeles where my aunt lived. I moved in with her. I started studying for the LSAT. I got a job at a law firm. And at the end of that year period, I applied to a bunch of schools and I didn't actually really get in anywhere that made sense for me to go. So I then moved to New York City where my best friend was living and I started looking for a job. Um, and I don't know how many people go from like cocktail waitress to executive at a venture capital firm. But that's where I started. I was a cocktail waitress working in the city, you know, working from like 4 p.m. till 7 a.m. in the morning, going out, partying, having lots of fun, while also trying to figure out how to get a job in an office. And one of my friends, my boyfriend at the time, he said, you, you should really look into tech because they're actually hiring. It was 2008 now, so it was the recession. And there were no jobs in publishing. There weren't really jobs in law firms, which is where I'd worked before. So I thought, okay, let me just see if I can figure this out. And my first job was literally an entry-level recruiting job. I'd never recruited before, never cold-called anyone, but that was the job I got. And that was the beginning of this career in recruiting people operations and HR. And I started working at tech companies. And the nice thing about that is that If you're working for a fast-growing company, then there's always more to do. So by the time I was 27, I was in a director-level role. I was making six figures, but I was also really unhappy because I hadn't really ever chosen this for myself. I just did what I needed to do. (laughs) You know, I was trying to pay the rent. I was trying to advance my career. I was trying to, you know, get those promotions. And so until that point, I never really stopped and paused and thought, is this really what I want to be doing? Is this even what I'm good at? I just thought, this is what I need to do to keep climbing up this ladder. And in this time, as part of that ladder climbing, 
I'd also gotten married pretty young for New York, especially. I was 26. And both my husband and I, my now ex-husband, were like, okay, we're not super happy in our careers. Let's take our savings and go travel for a year, which is why I love hearing about your travel right now, because it was such a, it was such an amazing experience for me, life-changing. While I was traveling, then my previous boss had said, Liz, since you just happened to be in Japan, will you help us with some hiring and opening a new office in Tokyo? So I took on that project and then I did the same in Hong Kong for them. And then I worked on their new Brazil office. And by the time my travels ended, I had inadvertently created a career for myself as like a consultant for hire for tech companies to help with all sorts of hiring and people related projects. So I did that for a couple of years. And then one of my clients said, Hey, Liz, I know this venture capital firm. They invested in me. They're looking for someone who does what you do, who can help all their founders. Do you want to interview? And I thought, yeah, sure. Why not? I couldn't believe that, that this opportunity was actually available to me. You know, I hadn't gone to a top school. I hadn't come up through tech or finance. And I didn't really have a lot of pedigree on my background, but I got the job. I beat out like 40 other candidates because I had this deep experience working with founders. And in the interview portion where I actually had to consult with their founders, they really liked working with me and they found like I had good solutions. And so here I was feeling incredible imposter syndrome at this place where these were people who are all like under the age of 30 who are millionaires. And they were, you know, some of the early investors in Instagram and Spotify, Jet.com. You know, they had a lot of big wins under their belt. And everyone had gone to Harvard. Everyone had gone to Stanford. And I felt really uh, out of place. And I felt really like kind of this childhood stuff popping up of feeling like I was never good enough. And it was actually through working on my confidence and learning that I had just as much of a right to belong that within a couple of years there, I was promoted to an executive level. I was part of the general partnership. So I got a stake in the firm. And that was really unusual for someone who didn't come from investing to be made, you know, part of the general partnership and to be an executive. And a lot of that happened not from trying to, you know, like fit into the way they were doing things, but rather to kind of own who I was. And it was like, yeah, I grew up really poor. Yeah. I, went to a state school, you know, but I learned there how to have confidence in my background and all these ups and downs and kind of this like meandering path that I took. I learned how to feel not just like accepting of it, but also really proud of the path that I'd taken, even though it was very different. Wow, that is such an incredible story. And I think anyone listening, it's important to hear how many like iterations of things that you went through. And like you said, it wasn't just here's the path, I'm going to take it and like, just do this thing for the next 40 years. You one thing led to the other and like making certain decisions opened up new doors, including travel. Like it sounded like when you were traveling, that might have even been more of like a sabbatical and like reset, no pun intended. And then somehow a new door opened. I'm curious when you were traveling, you know, this whole lifestyle opens up that I've lived that you've lived that you're like, I could just keep traveling and see the world and do things on the road. What made you go back to the United States or the city? Was it the job? Was it your love for New York? Like, tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, I I mean, one, I totally agree. The, the trip was not meant to be for my career, but it was the best thing that ever happened for my career. And that's a pattern 
for me. <laughs> you know, the things that I really gun for that I, you know, say I absolutely have to get this goal, like going to law school, becoming a lawyer. I really wanted to work at a big tech company like Google or Facebook, but I never was able to get a job there. I was never able to become a lawyer. And so I actually failed, quote unquote, failed a lot along this way. And it was kind of like the spaces in between that opened up this path for me. And it was the exact same thing with travel. I thought it would be, you know, a respite, a break. It would be fun. I thought it would bring my husband and I closer together. And what actually happened was that it was a great thing for my career. It really springboarded this new role as a consultant that I had that wouldn't have been available to me beforehand. And then also it was surprisingly kind of the beginning of the end of this relationship as well. So we came back to New York to kind of assess what was going on in, in our relationship and make more money and, <laughs> you know, get back to our apartment and figure out what we were doing. And within a year or so of being back, then we wound up getting divorced. And I always thought, you know, I'm going to go travel again because it was so expansive for me. It was such an eye opener. It shaped how I see myself. It helped me be a lot more accepting of myself. I owe so much of my life to that year of travel. And so I always thought I'm going to do another year of travel and do another year of travel. And it's actually never quite worked out because, you know, I was in this venture capital job. Then I started reset. Then the pandemic hit. But I still have this goal of when I have a couple of kids and they're, you know, roughly like 10 and 12 years old and thinking middle school, I do want to take them for a couple of years of travel. So that's something that I'm like already trying to think about saving money for and, you know, planning out my life for. It's so far in the future, but I'm determined to make this happen because I think helping young people like my future kids and also myself again to see the world is so much bigger than we think it is. There are so many more possibilities than what our culture tells us. That is the most beneficial thing you can do. And I just think, you know, around that time, I'll probably be like 50 years old. And how nice would it be to like have a new, fresh perspective on life? Totally agree. I love that you have that perspective and that you want to like give that to your your future children as well. You know, that's kind of the path I'm on where I still have the the freedom and the capabilities and the desire to travel. And I know eventually I want to kind of settle down and plant roots somewhere, but I still have that fire within me. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to keep going. But, you know, money is involved that hugely affects where I travel and how I travel. And something that really sticks out to me is you said you were living in Section 8 housing and then went to making six figures to saving enough to travel the world. I truly think that's so remarkable. And I want to know, how did you learn to manage your money or learn to save when coming from such a scarcity background? Because I think that's something we all want. We all want to make more money. We all want to save. But when you have childhood experiences that don't really reflect you know, wealth or abundance, I'm curious how you yourself started to learn about money and how to manage it and like cash flow and money in, money out. I love this question because I have been such a student of money because I've been trying really hard to rewire that part of me. I was so, we were so poor, you know, we really struggled. I remember there was like a field trip that I wanted to go to. And, you know, sometimes you have to pay a little bit of extra money. And you, I think you have to pay $5 or something for this field trip. And I was, my, my mom just didn't have it or, you know, she was just like, oh, I'll give it to you next week. I'll give it to you next week. It wasn't important for her. And I could have gotten it for free because I was on like a free and reduced lunch program for um, low-income families. 
I was just so embarrassed, like even being like in third grade and knowing that I was embarrassed to raise my hand and say, oh, I want to go on this field trip for free because no one else was doing that in the classroom. It just felt like, you know, I always felt like I wasn't enough. You know, I was always asking friends for rides places. I was always, you know, going to my friend's houses after school and eating snacks there. If we went to the movies, then my friends would always pay for me. And it really felt like I was lesser than, that I wasn't the same as other people. I didn't have enough. I wasn't as loved. And as soon as I started working in the world, I started reading all sorts of book or books around money. I've probably read like, I don't know, maybe 30 books about money. And it's a blend of kind of the factual stuff of this is how you budget. <laughs> and this is how you like save money. And then also mostly the mindset stuff of this is how you think abundantly. This is how you know you deserve it. And I think a big part of that is what led to my success at this venture capital firm. Because when I was there, I started making half a million dollars a year. Like I didn't start off that way, but I kind of like pushed for raises and I pushed for title promotions and for myself, you know, really, really hard. And I kind of lobbied and like thought about how to strategically get to the point where I could be making as much as like my male counterparts who had investing backgrounds. And so it's always been top of mind for me, like some of my favorite books in this arena. There's one called, I think, like The Energy of Money is really good. There are like kind of classic self-help books that I love that kind of tell you like you need to believe that you're worth it. But I kind of want to like do a spin in my bookshelf in a little bit and kind of pull out my favorite books. But it was something that I consciously really worked on. And part of that path led me down this first, the first part led me down this area of just trying to accumulate as much wealth as possible. And then it was like later that I layered on this idea and this understanding that also having the money come from kind of the places that you want it to, you know, like that's another way to be rich as well. And it was a big deal for me to quit my job in venture capital and start my own company. No one could understand why I was doing it. I had such a cushy setup, you know, like imagine being 33 years old, making half a million dollars a year, like working at one of the most respected firms, like having everyone want to talk to you at dinner parties and find out what you're up to and what you're doing. And I realized that none of it was making me happy, that it wasn't my path on this planet to just help other people get wealthier, you know, because that's actually what you're doing at the end of the day at a venture capital firm. You're helping the partners of the firm make money and you're helping the, you know, limited partners who have, have invested in the firm make money as well. And that wasn't what I really saw as my reason for being on this planet. And I looked around at the people who were in my life who worked in this industry and the money and the prestige were not making people happier. <laughs> it was like crazy hours. You know, I was working to like 10 or 11 very regularly. And I thought there's got to be more. I need to believe in myself, not only in my ability to make money, but also my ability to have a healthy lifestyle and be connected to my work at the same time. So that was the next big leap for me with Reset. There were so many ups and downs financially there. But now it's been four years and I'm back up to the income that I had when I was working in venture capital. This was not always the case. It was pretty rough for like the first couple of years at Reset. But a lot of that was around the philosophical and spiritual mindset stuff of believing that I was enough, believing that I had enough. And even when I didn't have very much at times, being able to kind of key into what I did have and feel really grateful and really abundant, even when things felt really scarce, because I do naturally tend to flip into this kind of childhood mindset of, oh my God, there's not enough. Like, 
am I going to be homeless? Am I going to be on the street? And it's through, you know, a variety of kind of abundance setting practices that I have to do really every day, really religiously. When things are really tough, they get me through it. Wow, wow, wow. So we're definitely going to need the book recommendations. Like you said, do the spin of the bookshelf because we need to know. And I think it's important that people hear this, that it wasn't just the practical you know, profit first or this and that. Like there's also a very spiritual and energetic part to money and holding money, right? And managing it is a whole different ballgame than just earning it. And I love to hear how people got through that that process. So thank you for sharing. Let's talk about Reset. Where did the idea for Reset come from and how did it originally start? So a lot of what Reset was, was this kind of reaction to what I was doing in venture capital which is very much cerebral, you know, you're not doing much. <laughs> you're like with like physically, you know, you're just kind of giving people advice. You're listening to their problems. I mean, at least my job. And you're kind of postulating about whether or not potential investments will work out. So it's kind of just a lot of like playing devil's advocate, thinking through, you know, what is like the outcome of future decisions. And so it's not like you're actually building a product, right? Or you're not creating a service. You're really just like thinking all day and making decks and like talking about things. And so I think part of the reaction was like, I wanted to do something physical. And so Reset originally was this physical space. It was a studio in Nolita, Manhattan, and people could come there to gather for the purpose of growth and learning. And so that meant that we would have corporate clients come in for workshops that either I would lead or I'd have other people in my network lead. Um, we would rent the space out to people to use for gatherings and convenings. And then also on the nights and weekends, we would offer classes to anyone who wanted to take them that were all about how to, you know, kind of investigate and grow yourself. And so it might be a class like, you know, group coaching. It might be a class that was like, you know, astrology for your career. It might be a sound bath. It might be a meditation. It might be a goal setting workshop. So it was sort of a hybrid blend of spiritual and business in these classes. And the space itself was, it was a great location, but it was kind of like the height of real estate. This was like 2019 and it cost a lot to renovate. So basically I took what I had saved at this, a lot of what I had saved when I was working in venture capital and I put it into this like pretty pricey renovation of the space. And it's it like in one of Manhattan's most expensive neighborhoods. So the rent was really high as well. And then I also took out a $100,000 loan from SoFi. It's like a personal loan with pretty high interest rate. And then put it into the, the space. I actually did not do the best business plan. I did like a very optimistic business plan, not a conservative one. And so kind of like month over month, there were all these expenses that I hadn't anticipated. Like we needed air conditioner units. We needed and like four of them, right? Because the space was so big. We needed new seating because people thought that the seating was uncomfortable. So I needed custom cushions. You know, we needed like X, Y, and Z for the space constantly. The water heater broke. We need to get that repaired. And at first, there weren't enough people coming in, both on the corporate side and on the consumer side. And so I was dipping into my savings every month to pay the bills, like to pay the rent and to pay the garbage and the utilities and the instructors. And after about six months, I had to, I mean, this is such bad advice because I would never tell anyone to do this, but I like liquidated my 401k to pay the bills. I took out like high interest loans on my credit card, like cash advances 
that would all start needing to be paid in like a year. You know, they're like, oh, take out cash now. And then the interest skyrockets to like 25% in a year. And I kept thinking, okay, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to make this work. And then things started to turn around. I started to break even and then I started to make a little bit of profit. And I was like, oh, thank God. At least I'm not like dipping into this, you know, my cash reserves because I'm literally out of money. And then it was March 2020 and all in-person gatherings were closed in the city because of COVID. So I had to shut down the space, take a big hit. Like, you know, I lost my deposit, which was, I think, close to $20,000 and move everything out, put it into storage, all the stuff. It was under a year that the stuff was actually there in the studio. And it was really depressing. (laughs) It was like, I felt like I had basically ruined my life and made the wrong decision. And I was kind of really down on myself. It was like the first time in a long time where my confidence really had taken a hit. I was used to a lot of external validation and I didn't know how to create that validation for myself. And so now that things were going not well, I was very, very hard on myself. I was like, you're a loser. You ruined your life. You make horrible decisions. You know, you're always meant to be in poverty. You know, this is kind of the trajectory of your life. And then I kind of sort of was like, I can't wallow here. I need to like pull myself up by my bootstraps and then start again, start to build up that mindset of confidence and money. And one thing that I did on the spiritual side of things was I uh, started to like write a gratitude list of everything that I did have. So when I was able to pay my rent on time, I'd be like, oh my God, I'm so wealthy. I'm so rich. I can pay my rent, right? If I could, if I bought myself like a $2 cup of coffee, I'd be like, oh, I love that. I can afford this coffee. And then I also started to try to like figure out how to get some money back. And because I'd taken like this giant loss on my income, I got a lot back in taxes that I had paid. And so that like helped a lot. And then I started building up a book of business around coaching because I thought, okay, I know how to do this. And eventually built up like this pretty hearty and robust coaching practice where I am currently among like the upper echelon of business coaches for founders. You know, my rate is high. And then I got a book deal. And so it was sort of like this rebuilding period for a couple of years where it was this almost a feeling of like a caterpillar being in a cocoon. No one sees what you're doing. No one knows where you are. I was very solo, you know, trying to figure it all out. And then it kind of just emerged one day that like I had built something really special. I had a podcast that I had launched during this time that was doing well. And an Instagram account that I created that was doing really well. That enabled me to get a book deal. Um, I very slowly, like piece by piece, built up this executive coaching practice. At first, I was just so, so desperate for clients. And then now for the past couple of years, I've been at a full wait list capacity for clients. And I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, coming back to that mindset of like, I am enough. I deserve this. It's okay. But I did have to rebuild my self-esteem because I was so mad at myself and so upset. And then now I look at it and I'm sort of like, okay, well, I paid everything back. I paid out my debt. And, you know, my book deal has like more than covered what I spent. Right. And so I kind of think, okay, I wouldn't have gotten this book deal if I hadn't started this original business and it basically shit hit the fan. And then like I had to start all over again. I wrote a lot about this in my book. It's a huge part of like how I learned a lot of the lessons in my book. I wouldn't have this book if I hadn't gone through all that pain. And so it kind of, you know, net net, I actually wound up in the green 
at the end of the day, we're like, I kind of actually made more money than what I lost in this whole process. It was just like a mega up and down swings, but I feel really proud of it. I'm glad about who I am. And I love talking about this experience of starting Reset and having it fail and having to find a new way because I don't think that it, it is uncommon. There are many points in time where I thought I was just going to give up and then get a job, which would not have been the end of the world, but like I just kept pushing and kept pushing. And so I like, I'm so happy to share this with your audience because I think it's important for everyone to know that success doesn't happen from being perfect. It happens from having actually a, a lot of failure and then getting up at the end of the day. And there's this Japanese saying that is fall seven times, get up eight. And I felt like that's just what I kept doing over and over and over again. And I feel also really lucky about my childhood because I think that that experience of like deep po- poverty also gave me kind of this resilience and fortitude to like always get up over and over again. Wow. I am shocked you didn't throw in the towel after losing a $20,000 deposit. It sounds like you were truly in financial turmoil. I mean, like you said, liquidating your 401k, taking out cash advances against your credit card. I'm curious at that time, were you asking for help? Like, did anyone know this? Or were you like, I just need to take care of this myself? Yeah. I mean, I was at the worst point, I was $140,000 in debt. And it was it was pretty bad. Um, I mean, that's a lot. And I had no no pathway to paying it back. I don't know if this is like the good answer or not, but I'll just tell you the truth. I didn't tell anyone. And I had a serious partner at the time who I actually got married to. Who's, he's my husband now. And he didn't even really know. And I think part of it was that for the longest time, I wasn't really admitting it to myself. Like there was a long denial period where I was not like opening the mail. Like I had to get stacks and stacks of mail piling up. And it's like, I can't even look at this. I can't even look at my bank account because it's too overwhelming. And so it was kind of only when I started to face it myself that I did let other people into what was happening. Um, I told my husband about it, you know, my then fiance, but he didn't help me financially. And like, I didn't ask him to, I really wanted to figure it out myself. Um, and, um, and, and like, you know, I think that's like part of like the stubbornness of, of me, but how I actually did process it is I actually put a lot of what I was thinking about and learning into my podcast and my Instagram account. So I actually talked really openly about it on my podcast. It's funny, I like, didn't really tell my friends, but I just told all these strangers. And for some reason that felt like safer because I don't know, I can turn it into something that might be helpful for other people. Instead of feeling like, oh, I was just complaining about it. And then I poured a lot of this experience into my writing as well. And so I think I didn't really share with friends as openly, but I found avenues of expression and ways for me to process it. I think I needed to process it myself. And so much of this book that I worked on even for years before it got published is about me trying to get to the, to the truth of actually what happened. You know, where did I make mistakes? Where did I have failures? How did I? you know, actually show up in great ways too. And I did get a lot of, like, I want to also be clear that like, I think I got a lot of lucky, quote unquote, lucky breaks, like big way I chipped, I chipped away at that like $140,000 debt was I had a great accountant and he was like, let's like back claim everything you paid in taxes, you know, as a loss. And so that was like $90,000. And he said, been making so much money, I paid so much money in taxes. And so then I had this like rest of a $50,000 debt to pay off, which I did kind of steadily over a year. You know, I made like a budget. I put myself on a budget. 
Um, I had, you know, goals for clients. And I also knew that I wanted to position myself at a high rate. And so I also got really good at saying no to the clients who I didn't think saw me in that way or respected me in that way. And then held strong until I kind of built this network of clients who were willing to pay the rate that I wanted. And it was really efficient for my time and like put me in the space that I wanted to be in. But yeah, I think like I feel really grateful for like everyone who listened to the podcast and who gave me like good, you know, positive reinforcement on Instagram. I was very, sharing very honestly. And in that process, like I had already had a podcast, the podcast before. But it was only when I started being super honest that it went from like 300 downloads an episode to like 3000, you know, it was like in a very short period of time. And then my Instagram account went from like 10,000 followers to 110,000 in like maybe eight months. And it was in the shift of being a lot more honest and a lot more kind of, you know, doing it as a way of self-expression and processing versus like trying to like get listeners or get followers. You know what is so funny is that podcasting ends up becoming a form of therapy that I don't think anyone really realizes. It actually becomes this like verbal processing tool. And I totally agree with you that there's a lot of things I've kept to myself and haven't even told my best friends or family. And then all of a sudden I release it on the podcast and sometimes you even forget and people are like, wait, what? When did that happen? And you're like, I don't know. It feels safe to share. And I find it so interesting that you saw your platforms grow when you were being more honest. When I imagined the way you were doing it before was maybe like, I need these content pillars and we're going to stick with this schedule and this strategy. Can you share more about like breaking free from that mold of rigidity and like we have to post X on X date and time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think part of it tracks to a broader feeling or sense that I had to be perfect all the time and to also follow kind of, you know, the ideal that is set out for you. And I really believed that until I had this big failure. I had really prided myself on like outworking everyone else. You know, I was there to do the longer hours. I was really striving to be, you know, the best. And when that all came tumbling down, kind of realized that that kind of striving for perfection was also a denial of who I was, you know, was trying to be something else. And so I came to the podcast from a sense of, yes, like, obviously, there are some, you know, important pillars to follow, like that, do you actually see better results? Like when I am more regular with podcasting on a regular schedule, even if it's every other week versus weekly, I do definitely see audience numbers come up. But it was more of what is the primary influence for what am I am I doing? The primary influence before was I want to grow this podcast. I know that I need some sort of platform in order to sell a book. And so I want this podcast to resonate with people and I want to grow my audience. And then after that happened, my primary motivation became more of like, like exactly like you said, podcast as therapy a bit, right? It forced me to process and make sense of everything I was experiencing and all these kind of big, messy feelings because I wanted to distill something useful back to whoever was listening. And in the process, I wound up, you know, actually creating stuff that was useful for me. And so I actually use this as part of a mantra that I use before I begin any work at the beginning of the day. Um, I always say something like this. May my hardships and learnings be of service to others. May I be learning and growing in the work I do every day. And may the people who receive my work know that they can reach their greatest potential. And those are kind of my new three pillars that I move forward with. And then obviously layered on top of that is like 
just, you know, best practices when it comes to podcasts, like making sure I'm linking to all my channels and blah, blah, blah. Those things are important too, but I had to get myself, I had to get my head on straight about why I was doing it and who I was doing it for. Wow. I love that. I think what really stood out to me though, is you said I knew I needed a platform like in the future for a book. And I really want to get into the process of writing a book and expanding even further on what you're, what you learned. Cause it sounds like your book really was the culmination of what your mantra is. Like, let my hardships and struggles be of service to others. It sounds like you wrote that in the book. Is that true? Yes, it is. And I really wouldn't have a book if I hadn't gone through all of that and realized that I didn't have to follow this path that is, you know, what looks like anyone else's is. And I wanted to write a book that would give people the experience of having an executive coach. So what I do for my clients is to really help them explore who they are to articulate and codify what their strengths and their areas of genius are because everyone has a zone of genius. They have things that they do in their own unique way that are different and unique to the way other people do them. You know, we all have areas of work where it feels like we can dive into flow state. And I help my clients land on what those are and try to stay in that zone for as much time as possible. And I wanted to do the same with a book. Um, and so that was a major motivation was to, you know, put my story out there to show people that you can have an unconventional path and still end up where you want to go. And secondarily, to make the book very much about them. I tried to present myself as someone who has had a lot of experience in coaching, but I'm also a deeply flawed individual. <laughs> you know, I'm definitely not perfect. <laughs> like, you know, the other day, my brother said something about something that I did that was really messed up. And I was like, yeah, you know what? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Like, I, that was a mistake. <laughs> it's a problem. And, and that's the thing is like, I wanted to write this book to show people that there's a path for them. It's exactly right for whatever they're going through. Um, and to give them the courage to say like, yeah, this is the way that I want to walk, even if it looks different from, you know, maybe the, the direction that other people are going. It sounds too like the book became a more accessible way to help more people because, you know, you've mentioned your coaching is higher ticket and you're serving a different type of customer than maybe the book would serve, which goes back to, you know, your whole ethos of like, I want this to help as many people as possible. What I find interesting is that people that are just starting out in business tend to idolize people that are higher up in business, right? Like, oh, they must have it all figured out. They know exactly what they're doing. They're a tech CEO. They have no problems. And someone like you is telling us, no, I actually coach these people. Like these people don't have everything figured out. And so I'm curious, what are some of the struggles or issues that you specifically help your clients with? Like, can you give us maybe a case study or a client story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a big one is confidence. This, it comes up over and over again. Um, and obviously that's not like a hard business skill in the same way that financial modeling is, <laughs> but it's still requisite for the job that they're doing. Um, and obviously I work with my clients on, you know, really specific scenarios like, you know, a board deck or looking through a financial model, but just as important is building that mindset and philosophical foundation. So, um, com the reason why confidence is so important is because, and I'm sure anyone who is doing their own thing in, in an entrepreneurial way can understand that. The second you start doing your own thing, you stop getting external validation from like your peers and your boss because you just don't have them anymore, right? Like there's no 
person to bounce off of and say like, am I doing a good job? Do you like me? You know, am I adding value to you? And it all has to come from within. And so a lot of my clients, it shakes them up a little bit, especially when they have to go out and do something like fundraise. You know, they are looking for that external validation of if I can raise this round of financing, then I will finally have something to feel proud of. I will have some proof that I am good enough. And what I say to them is, no, you have to walk in that door feeling confident, knowing that you can do it, not desiring proof or, you know, a pat on the back from anyone, because that is the energy that is going to be infectious and have investors want to invest in you. And so we do a lot of exercises, like I have them write out a document that lists, you know, everything that they have done in their life that is worthy of being proud of, you know, that shows their strengths and shows their abilities. And I have them read this document all the time. We talk about what's on it. You know, we humans have a negativity bias. We tend to immediately imprint the things that we did wrong, but we do not remember the things we did well unless we intentionally focus on them for at least seven seconds. So think about all the things that are wins, you know, little wins throughout the day that you did well, but they just slide right out of your brain like Teflon because you haven't taken the time to think, oh, wow, Liz, you did it, or Chelsea, good job. And so we mostly store these negative experiences we have of ourselves. So I'm trying to rewire their brains to remember that even before they've raised the round of financing, they have lots of things to be proud of and to have confidence that they can do it so that that energy translates to other people. So that's a big one. The second thing that I work with them on is a lot of interpersonal relationships. So how do you get the people who are working for you to be at their best. And a lot of that is not, you know, sometimes people are too soft and sometimes people are too hard. And it's finding the kind of right balance for that sort of leadership communication style. And then lastly, related to that, I work a lot with personal effectiveness. So we're as literally doing things like looking through the person's calendar and moving things around, consolidating meetings, figuring out what can go figuring out what's draining their energy. I literally have them take an energy audit where for a week they color code all their meetings and all their time spent in a different way to show what's draining their energy versus giving them energy. And then, you know, on the more kind of mindset side of things, I try to help them reach their greatest potential by letting them know that it's okay that they don't have to burn themselves out. You know, it's like switching kind of the mindset of how they're thinking about things to show them that they're actually more effective when they have a little bit more spaciousness. So in short, I'm trying to get them to like be as effective as possible to themselves, to their teams and with the external world. And I would say it's probably a 50-50 blend of like tactical, let's look at, you know, real business items. And then the other 50% is let's change the way that you are perceiving the world around you, including yourself. Oh, amen to auditing and like paying attention to your energy. I think uh, many of us that grew up in the U.S., you know, especially millennials, like we are trained to work ourselves to the bone or else it's not worth anything. And, you know, letting go of the idea that rest is weak or you're not, you know, motivated enough, or you're lazy is a really hard belief to break from. But I think the more and more, the more of us do it and create spaciousness and show that things still happen in this space. If anything, like we need the space to reflect and digest and, you know, decompress what we've actually taken in from the day we can start to see that rest is a power move. Last night, I was feeling very, very tired. I'm on my period. I've just been going really hard the last few weeks. 
And my business operations person checked in and she was like, hey, how's your deep work block going? You know, I you were working on these like 10 tasks. And I was like, I moved all those to next week. I truly do not have the brain power to work on them. And I started feeling guilty because I was like, Chelsea, it's 4 p.m. Like you could still be working for two to three more hours. And I posted about resting. Funny enough, I actually sold a one hour consult to someone who said, I appreciate that in your growth phase, you show us that you take care of yourself and you nurture yourself. And it's really something I want to be a part of. And I was like, wow, that goes in now my evidence bank of like resting is still valuable. And people will actually want to learn from you when you rest and take care of yourself versus the shiny metal that we think we get from working 80 hour weeks, which is not true. Yes. And exactly what you did, you were coaching yourself, right? You were giving yourself new factual evidence to change the way that you've been in the past. And I like in listening to your podcast, I think you're so wonderful because you do a lot of this stuff yourself. Like you really do coach yourself. Like you're like, okay, I'm going to try this other motivation technique or, you know, like you're like, okay, I know what motivates me. And so I'm going to try this other thing now. Okay. That's not working. And I don't think everyone's like that. And so you know, a lot of my clients, they kind of need help with that and being able to pinpoint. And so just as an example, like what you just did to yourself is something I might do with a client and say, hey, notice how this deal closed or notice how this thing happened. Notice how things are going more smoothly after you came back from vacation or you're fully rested. So I love, love that example you gave. I mean, I feel like that's my perpetual fight and like will always be. But as long as I'm getting up and trying to fight against capitalism and making us feel like we have to work all the time, then it's okay. Even if I'm not there yet, as long as I'm working on it. Yes, 100%. Well, there you have it. Part one with Liz Tran. Remember, part two is coming out next week where we get really deep into writing a book. I mean, I selfishly asked a lot of questions because I'm trying to write a book. So maybe it was more of a consult versus an interview. But I think if you're writing, you're really going to appreciate part two next week. And if you loved part one this week, you know what to do. Rate, review and subscribe. It is a podcaster's currency. It is what keeps us going. And it's what helps us show up in the charts and book more guests like Liz. So all you have to do is head to Apple Podcasts, scroll down to where it says write a review, leave a written review, or on Spotify, just go to the top where it says rate and you'll see there's stars that you just tap on. Now for written reviews, I would love, love, love to do a giveaway. So anyone that leaves a written review, screenshot that and send it into info at chelsearife.com, just my first and last name, or at chelsearife on Instagram, take a screenshot and DM it to me. And you'll be entered into a giveaway to win one of my most famous masterclasses, Interview Like Oprah. This class is valued at almost $300 and I teach you every single thing you need to know about interviewing. If you're trying to up-level your interview game and really nail interviews and make guests feel safe and comfortable and want to open up and have that talk show quality, then you'll want to take this class. So again, all you have to do is leave a review on Apple Podcasts and make sure you send that screenshot to me before you hit submit. Sometimes it gets lost in the Apple outer space ethers. So I want to make sure you actually get entered into this giveaway. All right. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you next week for part two.